You are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia. Today we are in Ortona. Brian, il barone, you've already got a nickname one day into the Giro d'Italia, the Baron. Uh, where are we? Well, first of all, thank you for that. <laughs> Unexpected. Yeah, we're sitting uh, looking at a fantastic landscape outside the tasting room of the winery Ifauri, where we're lucky oh to be lodging. One wine token. We, we, we should really say who we are and what we are. We're the Cycling Podcast. We're at the Giro d'Italia. This is Giro Vagando. Um, you've already heard that in the intro, haven't you? Brian, we are at the Tenuta Ifauri. Drinking actually. One stage down. Yeah, we're drinking a sta- uh, glass of pecorino, lovely glass of pecorino. We might even film a bit of this podcast so people might even be able to see the beautiful scene. Describe the scene for those who won't see. Well, we're looking at a very sort of rolling hills, high mountains in the background, snow-capped. And uh, we're looking at these beautiful vineyards, very well-maintained, biological and we're, we're drinking wine from, basically, we can look at the vines from where we're sitting. And Lovely pecorino, pecorino, which most people will know what pecorino, well, they'll, they'll know the cheese. Yeah, we're not drinking any cheese. We're not drinking cheese. That might be, that might be later. Um, pecorino, so-called, because pecora is sheep in Italian, and the theory goes that the the bunches of pecorino grapes look like a sheep's head. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, we can also see the other, if we look the other way, we can see the Maela, a very famous mountain, massif in this part of the world, where Blockhouse is. Blockhouse doesn't feature on the Giro d'Italia. Absolutely covered in snow, isn't it? Looks like it's been dunked in snow. But Brian, we've seen a first stage of the Giro d'Italia. Well, that has delivered, uh, I wouldn't say some, well, pretty emphatic verdicts on where everyone is at. Um, certainly starting this Giro d'Italia. I can see you getting nervous already because you know I'm about to. We've dispensed with the, the we've, we've dispensed with the, what was, what did we call it last year? The stay summary time trial, the deeply unpopular stay summary time trial. The tale of the tapper is back and you, Brian Nygaard, well, you are on the start round. It's time for the tale of the tapper. Brian, take it away. Thank you. And also, uh, you know, um, I think I need to say we're recording with a live audience. There's six um, or eight cats. Yes, this brings back memories. Uh, Dario Cataldo and Mattia Cataneo. Uh, famous podcast incident three or four years ago on Lago di Zeo. Dario Cataldo, who's from Abruzzo, he was at the finish today. He had a terrible crash earlier in the season. He's recovering. But yeah, we are surrounded by cats. Surrounded by cats. A glass of wine. What more can you ask? We haven't fed the cats. For anyone who doesn't remember that, infamous incident we haven't fed the cats any crisps we got in trouble for that a couple of years ago here we are so stage one of the 2023 Dio d'Italia started with a individual time trial of 19.6 kilometers from the Fossa Cesia Marina to Ortona uh, around 13 kilometers of that time trial was on a Ciclovia Costa dei Trabocchi so it's a bike path beautifully laid out uh, along the Adriatic coast uh, and uh, yeah the riders took uh, the start in in beautiful weather no winds and it was uh, Lawrence Huis from Intermarché who opened the the Giro and actually interestingly enough the last rider on the ramp was Stephanie Oldani so the three big riders everyone were looking to see and measure up against each other especially for the TT but also for the for the GC 
was uh, they were starting like basically next to each other. So Evenepoel, Roglic, and and Ghana were at the, not at the last part, but almost at the last part. The the parkour for this time trial was quite interesting because it was pancake flat until they swerved away from the Ciclovia and up to a small climb, small but significant, I would say, for a time trial like this, to the town of Ortona. And uh, it's not what decided the time trial, but it gave us a pretty good indication, like you said, of 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 who is really up for it from the start of this of this Giro. I would say. No surprises in in the result as such, but a small surprise I would say in 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 the I would say sizable one measurable on. measurable difference between Roglic and Evenepoel. So Evenepoel was the fastest today, significantly fastest, winning the TT and getting the pink jersey. Twenty two seconds ahead of Philippe Bugana, twenty nine seconds ahead of Schwal Meder. Uh, fourth place, Tau Gegenhard, forty seconds down, but. And this is probably the most significant news of the day is Roglic finishing 43 seconds down on what everyone at least until now and I think probably also should think of his biggest rival Remco Evenepoel for the for the overall winner this Giro. Any other notable performances Brian? Uh, Garrett Thomas, where was he? Garrett Thomas was ninth, uh, 55 seconds down. Uh, the team's sort of overall best result in the top 10 is UAE Emirates. They have uh, Almeida Jay Vine and uh, McNulty within the first eight riders today. Quite a, uh, an easy, if I may say so, quite an easy teletapper to do the first one, isn't it? Because you don't have to, you don't have to get too into the weeds about the minor classifications. Although the mountains classification was that's quite interesting. There was, uh, you know, this was one of those times I was finishing with a climb. We did wonder whether there might be riders who specifically targeted only that jersey uh, or whether the winner of the stage and the, the guy who ultimately went fastest was going to be the fastest on the climb. What happened, Brian? Yeah, I was quite convinced that actually the, the mountain uh, jersey would also go to Evenepoel, but it didn't. The fastest on the, I think it was a 1.9-kilometer measurement of that, um, including the climb up to the finish, was the fastest was actually McNulty, Brandon McNulty of UAE. Second was Tau Gegenhard and Joao Almeida. And when I looked at the intermediates, they still haven't been corrected, so they're unofficial. But um, Roglic and Evenepoel were basically within a second of each other on the last climb. So the time that he took out of uh, Roglic, Evenepoel today, was on the flat. Primoz Roglic, who arrived back at the Jumbo Visma, it wasn't the team bus, it was the camper van, which was parked just to the back of the press room. I was there. Um, he'd sort of given everyone else the slip on the finish line, and he came straight back to the camper, and I was there. Our friend David from Slovenian TV was there, but not many others were there. And he was in he was in sort of boisterous mood, as Primoz Roglic often is these days. When he came back, he sort of smiled at us, and, ah, he'd heard, ah, ah. But 50, he was very happy with the fact that he, he sounded happy, that well, with his average speed, which seemed a bit strange to me because I think he said, oh, 50k an hour, not bad, huh? but that is pretty standard, isn't it, for a Primoz Roglic time trial. However, he he was certainly talking a good game, appearing very relaxed. As I say, this is Primoz Roglic's modus operandi these days. The, he almost seemed too relaxed, as though it was a deflection technique. Um, you're going to hear in a minute his interview, the interview he gave me and NOS and a couple of other, NOS is the Dutch broadcaster here and a couple of other people, um, when he was warming down. But he's also going to, well, we'll touch on 
the difficult few days that his team have had because of course they have been as much as Ram Cravenable today Jumbo Visma's tumultuous build up to this race has been one of the story well has been the story of the Giro so far Brian can you even remember um, how many changes they've made it's been or they've a, had to make it's been a game of musical chairs so it's yeah it's it's, it's not been easy for, for their planning and it's certainly not been easy for, for the riders getting the, the late call up to go to this Giro so they've had to change even they had to put a reserve in for a reserve so someone they put in uh, instead of a COVID uh, positive actually had to leave as well so let's run through them Foss Tobias Foss he was the f- well the first to go with Robert Haysink they were replaced by Jos van Emden and Sam Oman then van Emden he had to pull out because of a COVID positive as well. And then yesterday they lost Jan Tratnik because he crashed on a training ride somewhere near the time trial course today. And, well, they had to call up their British neopro, Thomas Gloke, who we knew had been at this training camp in, where were they? They were in Tenerife, weren't they? We knew he'd been there. And there was talk a few weeks ago that he was on a sort of long list or he was the you know, third or fourth reserve for the Giro d'Italia. And, well... The circumstances in which he was given that call, or he got that call yesterday, were um, themselves a little bit, well, it was certainly an eventful day for Thomas Gloke. We're going to hear from him when he finished his time trial um, in just a second. But first, let's hear from Primoz Roglic and then Thomas Gloke. Primoz, what can you say about your time trial? Uh, yeah, I'm happy about that. Although I don't know completely the results, but... Uh, <laughs> For my feeling, or uh, what I did was uh, was nice. I'm happy. You came fifth, uh, 43 seconds behind Evenepoel. Uh, yeah, uh, for sure he want to be in front, but uh, he's fine. I mean, I did my best, and uh, up to the next stages. Yeah. So what does it say about Evenepoel if you feel fine and he's 43 seconds faster? Uh, that yeah, he was obviously faster today. Huh? Yeah, and what does that mean? Does it does it yeah impress you? No, not really. I mean, he's. Uh, 20 days to go, and yeah, the, the fastest and the strongest one at the end uh, will win. I didn't hope for nothing. I mean, like I said, for sure you, you want to be in front, but on the other hand, I'm also not uh, three minutes behind, so I'm happy. Uh, a lot of things happened this week in your team. Your your, your, fre- your freshest teammate, the last change, flew in um, on 3.30 this morning. He arrived in the hotel. Did it cause um, stress also also with you? With you? I mean, it's not ideal, huh? uh, and therefore yeah, it's uh, not something that you would wish for, but uh, we deal with it. Uh, yeah, we start the day today, and uh, yeah, we go on with it. Do you feel close to your best at the moment, physically? Uh, yeah, the, I mean, I did a good time trial, and uh, like I said, uh, we see uh, day by day, week by week, how, how it will go. Yeah, so I did a... Uh, did a four, I was planning on going up to uh, to Andorra. I got on a on a training camp with my girlfriend, um, just for just for some time away training for this next block of racing that I had. And I did a you know I had some time off after Romandy, and I came back after four hours, and I, I leave my phone on with the data off, and I, I came back and was like, oh, I have about 50 missed notifications from every man and his dog on the team. So I was like, oh dear, this is not good. Um, I pick up the phone to Grisha, and he said. I'll keep a classic Dutch, oh, he's German actually, but, you know, Dutch Dutch mentality. I'll keep it short. You're going to the Giro? I said, okay then. And, uh, yeah, like, that was basically, well, the final call was made around five, and, yeah, I was packing my bags, my bikes, because, you know, there were no bikes. It wasn't wasn't expected that I'd come here, and 
got to the airport and yeah, I arrived in at half three, half three in the morning. So that was an eventful, it's been under 24 hours since, since I got the call, so yeah. How, how did you feel now in the, in the time trial uh, and, and everything? Yeah, it was like warming up, I felt good. And then I was sitting on a plane for so long and in the car that I got on and my glutes were really stiff. You know, I was just <laughs> fighting the bike anyway. And to be honest, it's, for me, it's not the most pretty of disciplines to ride in the first place. So I never look very pretty on a time trial bike. And especially today I didn't, but I'm really looking forward to riding into the race. And what an opportunity, you know, the fact that I can say that I'm able to ride a Giro d'Italia is extremely special. Thomas, what have the team said they want from you or expect from you? Yeah, good, good question. I haven't, I haven't really spoken to them, to be honest. I think it, it's one of those situations where, obviously, Tratnik was a huge, integral part of the team, and for that to happen to him right at the last... You know, it's extremely unfortunate. He spent months at altitude this year preparing for this one race. The whole first half of the season was really built coming into this. So, yeah, he's obviously a massively integral part of the team. And, look, I've obviously got a decent shape at Romandie, so I think it's kind of like, um, expect the worst, hope for the best. So... We'll see. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of the cycling podcast, Giro d'Italia coverage, our stage one episode, is sponsored by GCM+. All of our listeners in the UK can get 15% off an annual GCM Plus subscription just in time for the first Grand Tour of the season. Go to gcn.eu slash cycling15, that's cycling15, to subscribe. GCN Plus is how I'm watching the race this year and I won't miss a single important moment because the whole race is live and uninterrupted and if you can't watch the stage is live you can watch full replays on demand if you wish but if you haven't got the time for that then you can pick from the highlights packages there's highlights packages of various lengths depending on the time you have available and one of the features that i really like on gcn plus is that you can pause and rewind the racing so if there is a controversial incident and you didn't quite see what had happened you can rewind and watch it again But really the thing that sets GCN apart is the commentary and presentation team. Friend of the podcast, Rob Hatch and Sean Kelly in the commentary box, of course, joined by Dan Lloyd, Robbie McEwen and Adam Blythe. And then the breakaway, their analysis of the race, all held together brilliantly by Orla Shenoui, co-host of the cycling podcast Feminine, of course. The GCN app is also your essential companion for the Giro d'Italia because it's got all the information you need about the stages, race previews, route maps and profiles and start lists. And of course, GCN will also be covering any other racing that's going on while the Giro has the majority of our attention. And if that's not enough, there is also an archive of excellent cycling films that you can watch anytime. And an annual subscription is really about the price of a cup of coffee a month. So go to gcn.eu slash cycling15 to subscribe. Well, Brian, we've heard a little bit about what happened before today from Thomas Glogue there, a fantastic account he gave. And we've heard a little bit about what happened in the time job. Let's wind the clock back to earlier today. I can't remember whether it was. It was shortly after 11 o'clock. And I dialed the number of our good friend, our absent friend here on the ground in Italy, but very much present. He's going to be present every day in the podcast. It's past 11. Time for my cappuccino break. La pausa cappuccino con Lionel Bernie. Dopo le undici. <laughs> 
Pronto. Is that Lionel? Lionel Bernie? Hello, Daniel. Uh, look, you've interrupted the King's coronation here, King Charles III. I mean, there's, there's even a Giro link here because the throne he's sitting on. on at the moment, it's been inspired by the Giro's Malia Rosa because it's a very fetching pink colour. Extraordinary. Wow, wow. Lionel, do you know what? I, I would actually give anything for a post-11 o'clock cappuccino right now because I have not stopped oh. this morning. As you can imagine, there have been a few cock-ups already. Um, the Baron, Baron Nygaard got his baptism of fire. My phone wasn't working, so he had to do the navigation. He took us to the permanence, their headquarters from for yesterday. So we ended 30 kilometers <laughs> out of the way. So it's not been it's not been very fruitful so far. Um, oh, it's brilliant. a it's a quintessential sort of Giro scene that I'm surveying at the moment. I'm in the press room, uh, which is in a volleyball hall, of course. That you know, 50% of stages at the Giro, the press room is in a volleyball hall. And um, Stefano Di Chate, who is the long-serving, much-loved press chief of the Giro, is sort of stomping furiously up and down. And I asked him why. He, why he looked so unsettled and disconcerted earlier and he said that he's been given official sort of um, Giro issue um, trousers that have no pockets in and his sweatshirt, his Giro Felpa sweatshirt also has no pockets in so he can't, <laughs> he's got nowhere to put his keys, he's got nowhere to put anything this is causing great consternation. Oh, anyway Lionel, man. how are you? This, this sounds like the sort of thing that might bring the whole Giro d'Italia to a halt, you know, I can imagine the hand gestures yes. already. Uh, here yes. in the UK, Giro fever building, obviously, but we've got to get the coronation of King Charles III out of the way first. Uh, I did notice on the start list there is one Charles in the race, Charlie Quarterman riding for Team Corotech. And there's even a Giro link there, you know, because he started out his uh, career as a very young man riding for Flavio Zappi's development team, which is based in Oxfordshire in the UK. And Zappi himself was second in the Giro King of the Mountains competition uh, in 1984, second to Laurent Fignon and wore the leader's jersey for a few days as well. But as you say, the closest we've got to royalty on the cycling podcast is Baron Brian Nygaard, Il Barone. Um, but if you've had a bad morning or a difficult morning, a logistically challenging morning, it's nothing compared to Jumbo Visma's build-up to the Giro, is it? I mean, we thought after recording the, the extra-large Giro preview that... Uh, their woes were over with uh, replacing a couple of riders. But then Jos van Emden, who was one of the replacements, then had to be replaced. Tom Glogue's now come in, as we've just heard. And, I mean, their kind of preparation is not ideal, is it? It's going to affect the team, surely. It's going to unsettle Roglic, or is he totally unflappable these days? My main concern, do you know what it was? And this is, I'm being facetious here. I mean, we're... we're very sorry for Jan Tratnik and I'm also disappointed that he's not here because he's also a great guy to talk to and um, you know he's a great guy to watch ride however um, I must admit one of my concerns is that his agent who is also Primoz Roglic's agent who is also my dealer of uh, a very difficult to come by Swiss soft drink um, <laughs> has got the consignment because he promised me that he was bringing two crates of Blue Rivella and he even sent me a picture a couple of days ago, the boot of his car loaded up with the Ravella. So I'm hoping that that hasn't been, the delivery hasn't been derailed. Wow. But the team, the team itself, I mean, Brian and I, we will talk about this, I'm sure, over the next few days. But the team itself on paper, it may not be that 
badly weakened apart from Tratnik obviously being replaced by a Neopro. Very promising Neopro, strong Neopro, but Tratnik, he's, he's three riders in one, isn't he? And Rowan Dennis, to be fair, can be three riders in one um, when he's at his best, but we don't really know, and we're going to find out over the next few days how well prepared these subs are effectively. Uh, moving on, Daniel, the other last-minute change before the Giro d'Italia was, as expected, the EF Education Easy Post jersey. They ride in a predominantly pink jersey the rest of the season, so to avoid a clash with the Giro's pink jersey, they have switched. I have to say, the new design would not look out of place at the King's Coronation. A real mix of colours, half yellow, half pink. orangey to me. Oh, uh, what, from a distance, you mean? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, the, the pink looks like the orangey for me. I, li- um, I like the half and half, Lionel. I must admit. I, I mean, it echoes of Blackburn Rovers Football Club, which would please Rob Hatch. Our good friend Rob Hatch is a Blackburn fan. Uh, but I, there's not enough striped tight jerseys in the peloton, so this is a big step forward for me. Lionel, final, final piece of news that's been breaking this morning, I think, has been about the penultimate day time trial, the Monte Lusari time trial, the very steep uphill um, time trial we got on the penultimate day. You've got some news, haven't you? Well, yeah, this is leaking out over the last 24 hours. It's all, way, all the way at the other end of the race, of course, so plenty of time for the Juros organisers, the UCI, the teams to thrash out some sort of solution. But the climb is a very narrow path and cars won't be able to go up. So the proposal is for the mechanics to go on the back of motorbikes carrying their spares, whether that's wheels or complete spare bikes, not entirely sure. But there are understandably some doubts about whether this is practical. Also, some concerns about how everyone would get off the mountain afterwards and so the climb itself is in doubt which would be a shame because it looks like a really uh, tough athletic challenge but it may well be that the logistical challenge is too much for the duo organizers to overcome but as I say best part of three weeks for them to sort that out. Lionel, I will endeavour over the next day or two to speak to friend of the podcast, Alessandro De Marchi, who is here riding for Jaco Alula, and he is from that neck of the woods, and I know that he also did a recon of Montelusari um, just a couple of weeks ago, so we'll get his verdict as well. Lionel, I think that's about it for La Pazza Cappuccino today. We'll check in with you again tomorrow. Excellent. Well, enjoy it, and uh, keep an eye on the wine list when Brian's doing the ordering later, please. Oh, that's an, that's a different pauser. That's, um, yeah, well, a, a different <laughs> subject altogether. Well, Brian, we finished our call there, more or less talking about the Monte Lusari. The, we, we went way ahead to the end of the Giro, and Rai TV also did this today. Italian TV also did this. They spent an inordinate amount of time talking about the snow in Switzerland in two weeks. Let's, let's not look beyond tomorrow. Um, you know, let's take every day, every stage that comes. You sound a bit like Roglic now. I do, you know what I mean, huh? But um, let's not let's not think too much about Monte Lusari and the penultimate day of the Giro. However, I'm, however, I'm, I'm not, I'm you're not. not I no. can tell you not. However, um, since I did mention it and I said that we would speak to Alessandro De Marchi, um, who has done a recon of the climb, I did see him actually after his time trial today, and uh, well, I did ask him what he made of this these sort of swirling rumours about Monte Lusari and whether it was whether it was passable and whether it was safe or not. It's just uh, typically a giro climb steep, not so wide, but uh, they make uh, the road new, so the surface is okay. I mean, there is no problem of uh, safety. There is a 
no problem I think for the uh, for the assistance during the the TT with the moto I think uh, the, the, the the everything would be fine. Brian, back to today, back to this afternoon, stage one of the Giro d'Italia, and I called it. I think I called it in the intro an emphatic verdict that was delivered by today's stage. It's the, you can't really describe it any other way can you than um uh, well an emphatic shot across everyone's bows from remco Evenepoel. he blew off the door basically coming into this giro uh, road probably one of the most perfect time trials you, you could possibly do on this parkour and uh, he i think he made a very clear statement about where he is and what he wants to do here it, it, he was a clear favorite and i think also the significant the significance of this result would and should always be measured to where is, where is uh, Roglic in this, where is his, his other competitors. No one was surprised that he would win. It was just a question uh, yeah, of it was just question of how how much time he would take listeners. out. Yeah. Loyal listeners will remember that I predicted this a couple of weeks ago. I thought that Filippo Ganna wouldn't win and that he would be well beaten today by Remco Evenepoel. Yeah, we well, we've talked quite a bit. We talked in our preview, didn't we, about these, you know, the, the sort of noise around... And the hype around Remco's preparation, and well, we saw uh, Liege Passant Liege how um, well he's going. So, I wasn't really surprised. I mean, there was a lot of talk today at the finish, just talking to various people on teams and other journalists. You know, who do you think is going to win the Giro? And in my mind, it's sort of a, th- uh, it's kind of a, a three-way split between uh, an, an even split between Remco Roglic and someone else. That, that's sort of how I'm thinking about this Giro. However, if someone was to say to me. One rider will dominate this Giro d'Italia. I wouldn't hesitate to say that it would be Remco Evenepoel. But I think he, we all feel that there is that potential here for this to be not Remco's sort of definitive blossoming or definitive arrival, um, because you know he already won the Vuelta Espana last year. But he has he's shown us things. We've seen things, haven't we, over the last few months that suggest that he might belong to a different category, even from Roglic. Yeah, I mean, today certainly highlighted that that thought as well. I would still say, let's say, if if Roglic had had lost ten seconds less mm. on a nineteen-kilometer time trial, it would have been within the normal sort of difference between those two. Even if Roglic is the defending, you know, he's the Olympic champion, he would have to he will have to rocklify quite a lot of arrivals, a lot of finish, a lot of bonus seconds to basically scrape back what he lost today, and it puts down a marker for. You know the the time trial that's in the horizon, which is almost twice as long. So it's an, it's going to be an, an interesting race, and it's also the interesting dynamics in in Remco getting the jersey this yeah. early because clearly he doesn't want to hold on to that f- no. for three weeks. I don't think that's realistic, and it's it's a huge ask for any team and for yeah for any rider really, even if the Giro is less stressful than the Tour. So it it yeah it sets it sets the initial marker. Of, you know the race is still wide open. You know, if if this this initial time trial had been ten kilometers, it would have been minuscule differences. Mm. But you know, now we sort of we know the hierarchy. That was a few decent surprises also. Yeah, on, I mean, on, uh, in the in the second tier sort of favorites yeah. for the race. I mean, there are different ways to sort of gauge Roglic's performance, aren't there? If you look, you know, if you if someone had said to you he's gonna finish on the same time as Stefan. Kung, you would say, okay, Roglic has ridden a great time trial. He's had yeah. a great start to the Giro. Similarly, you know, he took 50, around 15 seconds or, or 12 seconds off Geraint Thomas. So that is that. That's in the kind of um, th- th- that's more or less what you would expect from Primoz Roglic. 
But, yeah, to lose 43 seconds or 46 seconds, I mean, you what? know, I think back to Alicante last year in the Vuelta España, which was a longer time trial, a flat time trial as well. Um, and he lost a similar amount of time to Ren- Remco. And that was after Roglic had had a bad preparation to the Vuelta España or a, a difficult preparation um, because of circumstances last year. As far as we know, and he, he said to me, we heard it earlier, that he feels he's in good form. Um, we, as far as we know, his preparation's been good. I think there's a couple of things worth noting uh, about that, especially after hearing his interview. I think he was happy and I think he was genuinely happy because he looked at his, at his numbers. He also said to you that he hadn't seen yet the time differences. Um, it must have been a disappointment to finish that far behind Evnepoel. But still, if he looked at his numbers and he was happy and it, it confirmed what he'd seen in training. And don't forget that he's, he's coming here relatively underraced, but that's normal for him. And he knows, and, and I think we know, that the Giro will be decided in the last week in the big climbs, I think. At least it's not going to be decided on the time trials. But if you think back to Turin Adriatico, which opened with a time yeah, trial as well, the car, yeah. he, he was very under-impressive there, but still ended up pummeling everyone, yeah. big riders, on, on the climbs. And in the, we won like three stages there. So I, I think, you know, he if he thinks his numbers are good... He, he can't be surprised that Evenepoel beats him. A little bit disappointing that it's not 10 seconds less. But we'll see. The, the interesting and beautiful thing about this Giro is that it gets really difficult very early. So by the time we get into the, the climbing stages later this week, we'll get a, a much clearer indication of whether he is under-raced or whether he's actually just timed it right. Could there be something liberating in all this misfortune? Has it taken some pressure off him? I think so. Just, I yeah. think so, yeah. And also... The interesting thing about Roglic is he's very, very good at shorter, week-long races because he can really administer his his ability to take seconds on the on the on the finish line. That's not how you you win the Giro, and he's tried before where he spent an enormous amount of energy marking Nibali, say in nineteen, and he was sort of burned way too many matches in in his his quest for the for the pink jersey, and he, he's not here for that. And I don't think he's I mean, it would have been nice with the pink jersey, but when you look at the decimated team that he's ended up with now because of various reasons we spoke about before, it wouldn't be a great thing for him to, to lead this race too early. And, and there's no chance he will because there's actually few strong climbers in front of him right now. What we're doing here is extrapolating from today and we're talking about what it might mean. I mean, I have always on the podcast, I'm of the school, these time trials, these short time trials, today wasn't actually that short, 90 kilometers, but I think they matter. I think they're very revelatory. Um, however, not everyone agrees with that. But on on this subject, mm, let's hear from a rider, Jack Hay, Bahrain victorious leader here. He was 38th today, um, 136 down from Remco Avenapool. Well, I asked him at the finish, or I spoke to him, about how revealing today really was. And if it wasn't, why not? The, the course is so much about staying in position. And you see that the average speed to the bottom of the climb, I think, is upwards of 55 kilometers an hour. And the faster we go, the more aerodynamics has to play. So that's why I think that, of course, you need to have the legs. And maybe Gunner would win, regardless whether we did it on all road bikes with the same equipment. But um, definitely at these kind of speeds, the technology plays a big role. I'm not saying that we're behind, but I'm not saying that we're number one either. So I think you'll see, like in a lot of the time trial results this year, you see a cluster of teams kind of in the top 10, top 15. 
and I don't think that's just from legs. I think there is a little bit of uh, technology to play there. But like I said, it's not the thing that determines the result, but it just helps a little bit. It's a 19km time trial. We'll probably look at the results tonight and say that's quite revealing of form, but based on what you're saying, it might also be revealing of other things. Yeah, I think, look, it will be a good indicator of form, but I think if we had maybe a more undulating time trial with like 48, 49 kilometers an hour would be more of an indication of form. But just because this is such a high average speed, you'll see who's got good legs, but you might not see people on lesser teams, maybe even the pro Conti teams that will really show themselves in the mountains later that don't have any time to develop a time trial position but have amazing legs. Brian, interesting point there from Jack Haig about how today's time trial particularly might have, have revealed other factors besides form. And we, we then started scanning the, the results, didn't we? And we looked at whether there were clusters of riders who performed well. Obviously, it's, you know, it's difficult to untangle this from the time trialing pedigree of the particular riders who have been picked by the teams for this Giro. However, you know, Ineos, or Filippo Ganna was second. Ganna looked really disappointed to me um, in his interviews after the finish. Um, Ganna was second. Theo Gegenhart did a fantastic time trial confirming what sensational form he's in. He was fourth, 40 seconds down. And then Thomas was ninth. Don't forget about Almeida seconds. either. Well, then I was going to come on to them. UAE also, they had a cluster of riders. Joao Almeida was... Well, he... he overperformed I would say almost more than anyone although he's a really good time trialist but to finish third in that company is a sensational result 29 seconds down McNulty uh, eighth and actually seventh Jay Vine who I talked about in the preview he's one of the most intriguing riders in the for me so that, there was a little cluster there but the, the slightly in curious thing about this is that Jumbo Visma is the team of, of any team we associate them most with good equipment sort of savoir-faire on that score don't we however well Roglic was their only rider today who had a, a sort of significant performance I mean Eduardo Affini you would expect him to go well on a on a flat time trial 19 kilometer time trial okay small climb at the end but he was 25th 126 down what we don't know and I I only spoke to Roglic of the and Glog of the Yumba Visma riders we don't know whether these guys were they were out there to I don't think they asked anyone but Roglic and maybe Affini mm. to go full gas I couldn't I couldn't see any reason why any other rider on Yumba Visma would I think Jack Hakes Jack Hakes points are super interesting and and there's the ob obvious element that the faster they go the more aerodynamic count and with Remco pushing above 55 kilometers an hour, his aerodynamic setup must have been absolutely perfect. It's, it's, it's extremely fast, mm. extremely fast. And I think technology was just he keeps... wearing the special super snood? Uh, uh, yes, it was. Yeah. was. yeah, and technology moves so fast in the bike industry. And if even if you've had the fastest bike for a couple of years, if someone brings out new equipment that's even further developed, have you know, it will have a significant impact. Remco would have won anyways, but if he's on a, on a super fast setup or if UAE collectively are on a super fast setup, that 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 could explain at least a handful of seconds. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I always get the impression that this is, well, this is, as you would expect, a subject that the riders think about a lot more than we as journalists. And that's partly because, 
you know, we can't, and certainly not we, because this is certainly not our forte, we can't be on top of every equipment change. And there's a lot of secrecy around this now, particularly on time trial days uh, and other points of the season. Teams are pretty cagey about what sort of setups they're, they're using. But, um, you know, certainly like more and more over the last three or four years, I've noticed, particularly kind of off the record chats with riders, they've talked a lot about equipment. And it's something that's very much in their head in the same way that probably doping was 20 years ago. It's almost, uh, I'm certainly not saying that Jack Haig was, is paranoid, but I think there there is often this sort of nagging anxiety about other teams and other riders having better or faster equipment. Well, I short anecdote in the when there was a team time trial at the World Championships, uh, we lost. I worked for Orica Greenwich at the time. We lost the World Championship with one second. Yeah. And uh, Quickstep, who won it, they were on faster wheels, faster tires, uh, significant aero advantage. I, I think that Orica would have would have won. Because one second, if you compare to the technological advances they would have had, if we would have been on equivalent uh, equipment, uh, you know, the average watts of the riders would have been higher and we could have won it by, you know, 30 seconds maybe even. Because it was a fairly long team time trial into Florence. So there's a, there's a very interesting element in that. And it's not, you know, it's not great for Roglic to to lie awake at night thinking about this because there's a long time trial coming up in at the end of the first week so it's well you know the first part of the Giro so this is an interesting element and, and I'm not sure they can change it now they have the setup that they have just um, as well on Roglic and the setup he went with I mean a lot of people watching him today thought he was in a too big a gear um, he, he sort of I'm not sure we heard it there. I don't think we did he, he he sort of skirted around that someone did put it to him and he said ah oh, you know I'm not it's not the best for me yeah? um, it kind of a, a opaque answer difficult to um, difficult to know whether he himself thought that he'd overgeared. He he didn't look as though he found his, certainly in the first part of the time trial and you talked about how he actually went well on the climb but in the first part of the climb, time trial he looked as though he was struggling to find his rhythm a little bit well when you look at the com- how he ca- he came into this geo, and you look at how Remco came into this geo, they've both done a lot of altitude. Roglic more recently coming into this geo. and I think the the bulk of the work Roglic has done has been climbing, 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 and coming down from altitude and straight into like such a high paced and such a fast mm. time trial wouldn't be ideal. And when you think of of Evenepoel, he rides road races like a time trial. Yeah. He basically, you know, he says goodbye to the favorite group yeah. with 30, 40, sometimes even further away from the finish. So his, I think he, he will always be really strong and he's super ready and he's super aero. I think Roglic's work coming into this Giro has focused not solely, but yeah, mainly on the climbing. Yeah, well, we're, it remains to be seen. Um, we, of course, had an interview with Vasi Antastopoulos. Uh, would have been interesting to hear from Jumbo Visma's coaches. It would have been, it would have been. Uh, Quick step uh, coach who was with Remco in um, where was he? He was in Tenerife Tatum, as well, yeah. wasn't he? But he, of course, we heard that he went back to altitude after Liege, but he was very much focusing on his time trialing in that last block of training, I believe. 
just on Remco, you said there is very aerodynamic. There was a piece. I mean, the as we expected, I fully expected to turn up at the press room today and it, for it to be teeming with Belgian journalists. Sure enough, it is. There are a lot of Belgian uh, of our Belgian colleagues here, and they are really squeezing the sponge for new angles on Remco. And apparently, I I need to investigate this. I hope I haven't got this wrong, but I think there was a piece in Het Newsblad today about how aerodynamic Remco's skin is. Not his skin skin suit, his skin. He has naturally, physiologically... He's a fast face. <laughs> he's got a fast face. Yeah, uh, that's um, maybe even faster than pretty much Roglic. Just on Roglic as well. Um, Roglic is... He speaks faster too. Yeah, Roglic's humour is has been a feature of the last couple of years. Um, it did sort of fail him this afternoon when he got back to the Jumbo Visma... <laughs> camping car and there was a, a tifoso a fan who i think was italian but he was speaking to um, roglic in a sort of unintelligible esperanto <laughs> and he was just shouting out froglic froglic and and primo sort of looked at him quizzically and then he said rana rana which is the italian word for frog and then sort of burst out laughing at his own joke and at this point roglic who'd been laughing for the last two minutes with everyone um surrounding him at this point he um he sort of shot this guy a poker face, and um, yeah, I like the I like this. It wasn't uh, terribly funny. I, li- I like this side of Roglic. I think we're getting to know him more and more. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. The Giro d'Italia is off and running, and our coverage is once again sponsored by Science in Sport. The world leaders in sports nutrition, you can find everything you need to fuel your ride or your run or your sport, whatever it may be, at scienceinsport.com. Because Science in Sports supply some of the biggest sports teams in the world, from the Milwaukee Bucks to the Manchester United football team, don't tell Daniel I said that, and the Ineos Grenadiers. I spoke to Ben Swift, one of the most experienced riders in the Peloton, let alone the Ineos Grenadiers lineup at this Giro. It's his 15th year as a pro, and this is his fifth Giro d'Italia. He first rode it back in 2009, which was his debut season. And I asked him, what had he learned about nutrition in the course of his long career? What had changed in terms of not just the products, but also the nutrition strategy? Okay, if we first we go through, let's say, strategy, you know, we've seen we were the first ones to do like the the really like low carb stuff and using that as a as a as a strategy. And it's amazing to see what we've changed seen now is like it used to be all about the low carb, so low carb breakfast on the bike, post uh, post ride, then you'd fuel up in the evening and then it kind of went through the phase of where you do low carb on the uh, breakfast, low carb on the bike, high lunch, and then low carb in the evening. And now it's kind of going full circle again, where it's just more about high carb everywhere to try and get like the uh, the energy in and stuff like that. So, and we've also seen the change in races. So we've had to like fuel for the races because we just, everything's just gone so much faster now and so much more intense. We're seeing the races opening up so much earlier. It's not really that slow burn anymore. So. You've had to fuel for that. And then I think that kind of translates to the products that we're using. We're seeing much higher quality or quantity of carbohydrates in the drinks. You know, like I remember when the beta fuel first came out, it was kind of crazy to have 80 grams of carbs in one drink. It was kind of unheard of before. 
and now we're getting like the you know like the bake bars and like the the beta gels that i've got 40 grams so it's like it's a massive hit in one small dose and that's kind of you know like when i first turned pro it was you'd maybe have a bar or like one gel which kind of would have 20 grams in it or something like that you know so to have almost like double sometimes triple of that in one in one go is it's a massive improvement now and also like the the quality of it is just so different now for the full range go to scienceinsport.com you must be out of your goddamn mind joe lewis the greatest boxer ever lived i'll be with you boys in a minute he was bad in Captain clay he bad in sugar ray he bad in that who that you the new boy he got mike mike tyson look like a bulldog he bad at him too he done whipped mike tyson there he whipped all the asses what about rocky marciano oh there they go there they go. Every time I start talking about boxing, a white man got to pull Rocky Marciano out their ass. Well, Brian, what was that? Well, that was a dialogue from one of the great movies from the 1980s, Coming to America, where these fellas in the barbershop are talking about one of the greatest, maybe potentially the greatest fighter of all time, Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano. Uh, iconic Eddie Murphy film. Brian, where are we now? Why is this relevant to where we are now? Because we are standing in front of a life-size bronze statue of Rocky Marciano. And uh, very close to where we're going today for the time trial is actually the birthplace of his father. Correct. We're in a place called Ripa uh, Teatina. And as you say, his dad, who wasn't called Marciano, he was called Marchigiano. I'm not sure how the name got changed. Anyway, he emigrated like millions of Italians. He emigrated to the United States around about the turn of the century. And his son, Rocky Marciano became, by some estimates, the greatest heavyweight boxer of all time. The only heavyweight boxer who ended his career with something like almost 50 fights undefeated. Yeah, and he was also the, the shortest ever heavyweight champion. Same height as you? The exact same height as me. Uh, carried a bit more of a, a bit more muscle, a bit more of a punch. I'm more sort of the dad bod these days. But yeah, what a fight and what an athlete. And Brian, you're a bit of a sculpture connoisseur. How does this one rate? I think I'm just looking at it. It was installed 1990. Well, I actually think it's, it's, a, it's a quite a beautiful statue. I think his face is a little bit less accentuated than, than his muscles. Actually, when you see it from behind, it's actually really well made. Uh, quite small feet, but he was a quick one, wasn't he? And uh, with a great reach also. Yep. Undefeated Rocky Marciano. Brian, Abruzzo, the region we're in, very fertile as far as illustrious emigres. Um, are concerned. A lot of mm, people who ended up being famous in the United States in particular hailed or they, their families hailed from Abruzzo. Dean Martin was born Dino Paul Crocetti, um, fully Italian name, only spoke Italian in the first years of his life. His family was from Montesilvano, Pescara, just down the road, just where we're going in fact for the time trial today. Michael Buble, um, not someone we particularly our fans of on the cycling podcast well, but it's not on the playlist though canadian singer songwriter actor of course his grandmother yolanda moscone was from carufo in the province of l'aquila in abruzzo as well and well we've mentioned rocky marciano possibly the greatest boxer of all time or greatest heavyweight of all time probably the greatest motor racing driver or f1 driver of all time juan manuel fangio or fangio if you pronounce it um, a la italiana 
His grandparents were from the, or his grandfather was from Kieti, also just down the road. And his, his grandmother was also from Abruzzo, a different part of Abruzzo. So, as I say, lot of very famous emigres from Abruzzo. Yeah, and you'd almost wonder why they, would, why they would leave here, because this is a really beautiful place. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, Brian, that was us earlier today in Ripa Teatina. The race is going to go there tomorrow. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But we're very much enjoying our time in Abruzzo, aren't we? And not only because of the Pecorino. No, I think it's it's a beautiful and potentially underestimated part of Italy basically has everything high mountains beautiful coastline great food fantastic cycling traditions it's um, yeah if they want to do it as a way of highlighting the the, the beauties of, of this area they've, they've certainly done a good job and, and it'll be a, a really beautiful stage tomorrow as well and Brian well today was the Costa dei Trabocchi these sort of fishermen's huts that dot the coast um, that the race went up today. We've got a Trabocco on the label of the wine we're drinking. We ate in one a couple of years ago. It was, you know, I don't eat seafood really, but it was um, a memorable experience. And the food was, by all accounts, according to everyone around the table who ate fish, it was excellent. Yeah, I did that as well in the, when the Giro went past in, in 2019, and, and I enjoyed it a lot. And it's quite an ingenious way of of fishing really and I was I was reading up on the on the background of these today because it was such a significant element of the stage and they potentially dated back all the way to the Phoenicians so it's a very very old construction and apparently because they weren't that great farmers back then they they were trying to support themselves via fishing and they weren't great navigators and great sailors either so to avoid this uh, the cliffs of the coast and the tides and everything they basically created these huts to to be able to support themselves via via fishing, and it's something that you know, there's no, it's not for for nothing that you see it on this label. It's it's sort of the the symbol of of this region, at least the coastal part of this region. It's an interesting region, isn't it? Because we were talking, we were also on the terrace yesterday afternoon. We were talking with our host here, Francesca, about Abruzzo. And the people from Abruzzo, it was clear, certainly talking to uh, Francesca, they really consider this part of the south. And we've talked many times before on the podcast about this big north-south divide in Italy. And, you know, there was a big political movement. There has been a big political movement for a long time. Uh, what's the word? It's kind of separatist, cessation. Yeah, yeah. You, you, I mean, uh, so, right. Salvini was, when early in his career, the former 
I don't think for, he's a um, leg on the Yeah, and he wanted to do a, a, a clean yeah, there cut are separation. Who, there, are, there are people who would like the north and the south to be different yeah. countries because they're very different economically and uh, in other ways as well. But Abruzzo is geographically, it's just south of the centre line and you and I were both saying to Francesca that when this we... This is not the south. Well, well, yeah, it doesn't feel like the south. It feels no. like it feels like a relation of a cousin of Tuscany or Le Marche yes. or Umbria. But she was saying, no, they feel very much like the south. And we were talking also about the fact that when Danilo Di Luca won the Giro d'Italia in 2007, he was hailed as the first ever rider from the south to win the Giro d'Italia, which in itself was quite extraordinary. It was 100 years of history and the first um, southern Italian rider. But she, well, she said that they feel their identity is very much southern. I said to her, which I don't think she really appreciated, that Abruzzo to me, if it is part of the south, it's like the Switzerland of the south. Well, not that's not nice. Switzerland. I didn't. Have, I would have it's left not the table a country if I'd that, heard you, that. that you appreciate. Um, I think the, um, as much as I do. Judging from what she said, there's there's several elements to the north-south divide, and the way she spoke about it was that. The mental outlook here is southern, right? So the way they they probably they don't take themselves career-wise, they don't kill themselves to go to work. They they're quite sort of relaxed, and I I sense that. But when you look at how, you know, this is one of the biggest wine-growing regions in Italy, probably the second biggest, and how meticulous they are. How and this is a lot of work working these these types of vineyards. Where we are now is biological, which is a lot more work than conventional farming. So they're quite serious about what they do and mm. you need to be quite busy and you need to be really on the ball to work that way, which is not usually what we think about southern Italy, you know. it's Well, it's not the stereotype, is it? No, and but her, it's more the mental outlook. And when you look at how they've been quite busy resurfacing as late as today, basically the roads for the Giro tomorrow. So there's, you know, there's, that's, that's a very southern thing. Mm. Had it been up north, those roads would have been finished, you know, the paving would have been done by November last year. It is an interesting region. I was reading a bit about it in the days before the Giro. Um, it's the only southern region with no evidence of any Greek influences here. The Greeks made it everywhere in the south of Italy, but they didn't make it here. And that's um, the sort of one of the theories about that is because there's no real plain. It's quite a difficult place to attack from the coast. Um, it's very, very mountainous. Um, it's a, a sort of region that for a long time it was said that Italians... So their, their um, idea of their sort of mental image of it was a physical image. They could m imagine the landscape, but they didn't really have any notion of a sort of other contributions to the national psyche. They didn't have a major newspaper for a long time, no university, no major university for a long time. And also a huge number of Abruzzesi people from this region left for Rome in particular. Apparently um, there were more Abruzzesi in the 60s, there were more Abruzzesi, I don't know if this is the case today, in Rome than in the four biggest cities of uh, Abruzzo. There's a geographical element to this as well. It was funny when I was on the train coming here, there was a father with two young children and he was quizzing uh, his kids about the Italian regions, so the 20 regions in Italy and how they are obviously all connected. And he was quizzing them, and, and they, they couldn't really sort of by heart tell which region came after the other. And, and when you look at it, it's like, you know, Le Marche, Abruzzo, Molise. And we all know Molise, other than the joke about it not, not exi existing, existing yeah. is, it's deep south, to me at least. Mm -hmm. Molise is south. But I feel like when I'm in Le Marche, 
it it feels like a little bit of world of its own and and the Bruzzo and Le Marche I can't distinguish them mm. other than I know the different Grey mountain is very beautiful yeah and the, the different wine regions they grow different grapes mostly but other than that you've used up so many wine tokens you tonight. opened it <laughs> with that excuse me but they're to me a little bit indistinguishable but as with anything in Italy you couldn't tell someone from Abruzzo are you really just you know Le Marche people they would be quite offended by that. It would be the same if you t- told me that, yeah, you're Tuscan, so you might as well live in Livorno. Never. Brian, enough of us droning on about Italian geography. We've had a postcard from us. Let's have a postcard from someone else. Our good friend, Lucky Larry Warbass, the Motown maestro who is riding this Giro d'Italia. Larenzando, a postcard from Italy with Larry Warbass. Well, Larry, you're underway. You're rolling. You're rocking and rolling. How was that? Yeah, good. I tried not to rock and roll. I tried to be super stable on the TT bike. <laughs> yeah, I think it was okay at first. I wasn't planning on going full gas, but then uh, the team said they wanted my checkpoints for Aurelian at the end, so I said, well, shit, okay. <laughs> I you were used by the team for the benefit of someone else. I guess that's what they pay me for. So, <laughs> How are you feeling generally coming into the race? I mean, how have you felt about the last couple of weeks to prep? Well... My prep kind of sucked, but uh, <laughs> I actually feel quite good, all things considered. So, what did it suck? Uh, well, just like I would have liked to do a solid altitude camp, like a straight block, you know, like three weeks or something straight um, at altitude. But like I think we mentioned in a few episodes, is like I had to go do vast country, and then you know the Hardens were always planned, so kind of came down, went back up, came down, went back up. So hasn't exactly been the most. Uh, it's been a rock and roll preparation, so not, not as stable as I would have liked, but actually I feel really good, so I hope uh, I'll be able to do something. We expect big things. You're the first. You're not a guest anymore. You're, you're a host. Yeah. You're the first cycling podcast host to ever do the Giro d'Italia, and we're expecting cultural insights from you most days. Okay, that sounds good. You know, it's funny because I was telling my teammate today that uh, I was looking at the cycling podcast Instagram, and I was like, damn, that looks like that a looks fun... Uh, that looks fun, you know? I was like, oh, there, you know... Eating good food, drinking good wine, staying at nice places, and you know. Meanwhile, we're uh, in some uh, 1976 uh, era hotel that hasn't been updated since 1976. So, <laughs> but it's okay, you know. At least it's on the sea; it has a nice view. As much as I would like to be a cycling megastar, I'm not gonna. I wouldn't swap places with you, Larry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought you know, maybe in a few years I can come join you guys on the other side. Cheers, Larry. Yeah. La tappa di domani e la cena di ieri. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Brian, let's start with yesterday's dinner. What did we have? I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't really. It wasn't sort of barone, usual barone standards. It was a fairly humble eatery, wasn't it? Just down the road, down the valley from where we're staying. And oh, what did I? I, I had sagne which was it's kind of like uh, tagliatelle gone wrong and sagne and you can probably imagine there's some relation to it, lasagne and what it actually is is what if you can imagine fettuccine or tagliatelle cut by yeah someone who's a little bit scissor happy and um, so they're very short so i had those with cecchi with chickpeas and it's a soup really um you get something similar in tuscany and i you know, i committed a bit of a cardinal sin yesterday because i was very hungry because i hadn't really eaten all day so i had two Primi piatti, two sort of starters or pasta dishes. I had the sagne and then I had ravioli 
which was it had nearly cotton spinach inside and was a kind of saffron sauce. You had a steak. I just taken a salad. But um, do we do we need to dwell too much more on yesterday's? No, it wasn't no. that much of a and gastronomic I, I, extravaganza, was it? And as we, we spoke on? about, we I'm going to overcompensate tonight based on yesterday's misbehaps. Eek. The um, on my wallet is wincing. Anyway, um, Brian, tomorrow stage. Yeah, tomorrow stage, the first road stage of the 2023 Giro. Quite a long one, 202 kilometers. Takes us from Teramo to San Salvo. It's not pancake flat. There are a few climbs, smaller climbs in the beginning, and then there's two categorized climbs in the middle and the last part. It's not an easy finish in the technically. The, there's a few corners in the last sort of kilometer and a half, and but then the last kilometer is is one straight line. This is most likely going to be one of the obvious, and I think quite few sprint stages of this Giro. Brian, tomorrow we are, well, we said we're in Abruzzo. We're going to finish tonight with, by talking about one of, well, probably the most famous Abruzzese. We heard about uh, Rocky Marciano, Marciano, Marquigiano, his Abruzzese roots. He would be the most, maybe him or Dean Martin would be the most famous Abruzzese in the United States. But if you speak to an Italian person, the most famous Abruzzese is probably Gabriele D'Annunzio. Uh, sort of titan of Italian, the Italian literary scene, public life, around about the start of the 20th century. But it's one of those names that if you study Italian, if you spend a lot of time in Italy, you hear an awful lot about. And I must confess, I always heard that name, knew that, you know, he'd written books and poems and this and that, but didn't really know too much about him. But tomorrow we are skirting his birthplace, Pescara, Brian, should we say buonasera to the listeners and, well, hear from our sort of cultural guru on the cycling podcast at the Giro d'Italia, John Foote, who is the author of lots of books about modern Italy, also about cycling, pedalare, pedalare. His most recent book is called Blood and Power, The Rise and Fall of Italian Fascism. And, well, there is a link between Gabriele D'Annunzio and fascism so let's hear about that from john and brian we'll be back tomorrow around about the the same time where will we be this time tomorrow i think Uh, we'll be in vasto correct i think i hope here's john foot so he was this incredible figure really i mean there's an amazing if anyone wants to read about him there's this book called the pike which i would highly recommend by lucy hughes haller which is also a fantastic read he's a sort of actually quite repulsive figure in many ways but an extraordinary kind of ahead of his time kind of guy a poet filmmaker soldier he was everything at once and 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 kind of novelist sort of famous lover um and i suppose his kind of contribution to history that's most important is that he he kind of invents fascism um he's a kind of spin doctor of fascism he 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 talks he most of the slogans of fascism are invented by him he's a great sloganeer and in 1919 he takes a kind of ragbag army of of like volunteers and he invades a place called fiume which is uh today in um in croatia um was was kind of contested territory after the first world war and he takes control of it and kind of runs it as a crazy little dictatorship with all kinds of artists and poets turning up. And I mean, it's mad. It's like a sort of Woodstock crossed with a fascist um, um, state. I mean, it's really weird. 
And a lot of the things that happen there are then transmitted into fascism. So with it, you don't really get fascism without Denuncia. But he never really joins fascism. Um, he kind of contributes to it, but he's never he never becomes part of the regime, never joins parliament properly. So he's kind of, that's why he, there are streets named after him. One of the most bizarre places to go in the world is the Vittoriale, which is placed up on top of the hill above Lake Garda, where he lived for years. It's the most kind of kitsch, I don't know if you've ever been there, Daniel, but it's absolutely mad. I mean, it's a, the garden's got like biplanes in it, boats dug into the side of the hillside. His house is the most kind of grotesquely kitsch place you've ever seen in your life. Even in the First World War, you look at his, he lost an eye. He went on thousands, you know, hundreds of like crazy plane missions. There's this mad thing where he goes on a kind of submarine uh, and he threw leaflets over Vienna. In a, I mean, it, it's all kind of crazy stuff and sort of often militarily dubious. But, um, you know, it's sort of hard to ignore. Um, and, and, and kind of, I don't think fascism would have happened without him. Also, because he just, he was, a, he was a sort of media savvy kind of guy. Um, advertising, you know, kind of. I kind of gave 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 fascism all its kind of advertising slogans, uh, which they then just stole. Even the black shirts and the and the and things like that. So it's um it's a fascinating figure. Uh, Pescara kind of claims him. I don't think he was that interested in Pescara to be honest. But they kind of claim him as as their as their son, as as lots of places do in Italy, in terms of famous people born there who didn't spend much time there. But um, he was uh, yeah a really interesting and crucial personality for the 20th century Italy. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne.